0: You're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Here again is Laura Zarrow.
1: Welcome back to Women at Work and our ongoing conversation about how we can help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm Laura Zarrow. Back with you to continue talking about locker room talk and how to fundamentally change the conversation. Our phones are open at 1 844 Wharton. That's 1 844 942 7866. And we'd love to know what you're doing to change the conversation and improve it. In the meantime, I'm going to get started with my next guest. We're honored today to have Dr. Sean Harper, who is the executive director and founder of the Center for the Study of Race and Equity in Education at Penn's Graduate School of Education, my alma mater, by the way. Um, He's joining us today. He is a powerful advocate for equity in all the avenues of our culture and societal structures. He writes and conducts research on topics that deeply impact lives of traditionally underserved populations, examining race and gender in education, black and Latino male student success in high school and higher education, and equity trends on college campuses. Widely published and frequently honored by his peers, it's no surprise that he was appointed to President Barack Obama's My Brother's Keeper Advisory Council in 2015. And if that That's not enough. He's also the co-director for RISE for Boys and Men of Color, which is working to combat inequality on four fronts, education, health, juvenile and criminal justice, and workforce development. So with all that, I could go on and on, but I'm going to get the ball rolling and say, Sean, welcome to Women at Work.
2: Thank you. That's (laughs) such an incredibly generous introduction. I really appreciate
1: it. Well, you've totally earned it. So um, as I mentioned to you before, I was blown away when I read your Washington Post piece um, about that men do talk like Donald Trump, and how do we stop it? Um, Sam Poe called it bro talk in his fabulous New York Times opinion piece. Would you help give us language for what kind of talk we're talking about?
2: Sure. Let me just provide, though, some context for my Washington Post op-ed. I was keynoting a conference in Memphis, and I checked into my hotel and turned on the TV that Friday evening, and there was the breaking news of Donald Trump and Billy Bush uh, in the video, the, the the now infamous video, yes, right? The video, and like honestly, Laura. Within like ten seconds, I said to myself, "Oh, I know these guys, right? I I, I know them really, really well because I've been around these guys for much of my life." You know, I think many does that of...
1: mean you've been hanging out with Donald and Billy?
2: No, no well, not quite Donald and, and, and Billy. You know, I originally titled the Washington Post piece "The Trump I Know." Uh, And it's because I know so many Trump-like guys. So this is
1: behavior that you've seen.
2: I've seen, I've I've encountered firsthand. Um, It not only happens in locker rooms, but it happens in in bars, in barbershops, on golf courses. And I even mentioned in the piece that it happens at birthday parties. So a few years ago, I was at a birthday party for a five-year-old. And I noticed that, you know, there was a group of guys sort of hanging out, uh, out in a corner. So, you know, I went over and these were mostly straight guys or presumably all straight guys, right? And, you know, these were dads who were sort of, you know, standing off in the corner, you know, rank ordering the women and talking about, you know, which women are hot and which are not and which ones they would do various sexual things to and, and, and so on. And, you know, I said, guys, we're at a... Birthday party for a five-year-old, right? This isn't, this isn't right. It's also not right to objectify women.
1: So you said this?
2: Yes, I. I Thank I've, you. I've amassed for myself a reputation for being <laughs> disruptive in these ways when you know guys are doing what Trump called locker room talk. I Kind of, sort of like Melania Trumps. I can't believe I'm saying this. Can't. Be, I. I, I, I sort of like Melania's characterization of boy talk, right? Because I do think that there is this way that boys are, and young men who become 59-year-old adult men, are socialized to talk when they're around other boys, around so other guys. So they're learning
1: this from somewhere.
2: Right. I think that it is born in schools. Is certainly born in in families. Um, you know, when boys are coming up and they behave badly, it gets sort of excused as, you know, boys will be boys, Right. Um, so I do think that there's something about the excusing of the boys mis- are
1: fundamentally rougher, bolder,
2: right. Right. R- less exactly. contained, exactly. more raw. Yes. Um and even in my own research, so I study young men in high schools and in higher education, and young men talk with me in my research about the enormous pressure that they feel when they're in predominantly or all male spaces. Because there are guys who are sometimes, you know, saying you know really derogatory things about girls and women, and other guys feel some real pressure to sort of jump in and high five and validate what's being said, because it seems that everybody's on the same page. But actually, the guys say that that's deep down inside, that's not not really who. So
1: when we talk about helping women find their own power. The wildness within them, the strength to stand up. Part of what we recognize is that when women are given role models and all these figures that they're supposed to identify and learn from that diminish how big they can be, women then believe that's only how big they can be, and it's a journey to break out of it. So I think what I'm hearing from you is that we're imposing a stereotype on young boys that dismisses bad behavior. And then there's something in the group culture that pushes it back upon the boys and young men who may have been freed from it.
2: Yeah, I think I think that's exactly right. Um, I want to be sure here to, you know, attribute the early socialization of boys and the excusing of boys will be boys uh, to both, you know, moms and dads. It's not it's not just the women in their lives. You know, there are men who. All the adults in our culture do this. Not all adults do this, but
1: but when it's happening, it will come from all genders.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. What I say in the Washington Post piece is that my research makes very clear that, you know, a 14-year-old high school freshman needs – and let's do situate this example in a locker room. A 14-year-old freshman student athlete needs his coach to – stand up and say to the 15 and 16-year-old boys that, hey, this is not how we talk about women, right? Um, the 14-year-old doesn't have the confidence mm-hmm. to do it. And furthermore, he needs the peer support. So
1: I was going to ask about that. To talk to me more about where when can peers help with this and when does it need to be an adult, and does the adult need to be a role model? Is that the same thing?
2: Sure. Uh, The adult definitely needs to be a role model. And behave like one. And behave like one. You know, um, I I even said in the article that, you know, as a young kid, you know, I would be around adult men who would objectify women. Mm -hmm. And in front of me, in, in front of my male cousins and, you know, other young boys, and I think that we sort of learned the script of how to assess women's bodies and how to, uh, you know, talk sexually about them from adult men in our lives. So, you know, for young men, I think that it has to come from from older men and also reinforced by the women in, the, in, in their lives too, right? Uh,
1: so but, does it, sorry, does it become like a kind of social currency? Yes. And a mechanism for men to connect with a- each other?
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. I cannot tell you how many times... I've heard young men in my research say that there is some currency that comes along with talking in this way, even if you're not being your authentic self, right? That you want to feel like you fit in and you sort of get the cues that, you know, well, this is what scores you validation um, in in these spaces with other men. I do want to go back to your question, though, about. Uh, The role of peers. So I do. I do have a bit of good news. I I I suppose, right?
1: Thank you. (laughs) Yeah.
2: So I've done this uh, study of fraternity men. So undergraduate men in uh, mostly predominantly white fraternities at twenty very large public universities. So think of the quintessential, you know, frat row meets big time sports culture. Okay. Right. And um, I study men in these in these IFC fraternities who had amassed for themselves reputations for not saying and doing sexist racist and homophobic things and furthermore they were the ones who were notorious for standing up and holding their chapter brothers accountable in the fraternity houses when and in other places when they would say or do something sexist racist or homophobic so the focus of that particular study for me was to first understand, like, well, what is the impetus for these guys, right? How and can do they find And, their and courage? can we bottle it and, you know, make all fraternity men drink it, right? <laughs> um, but then also to, to, to understand how they skillfully navigate, uh, you know, pressing their peers and holding them accountable and calling them out while also still being like, you know, a cool bro. Who,
1: okay, so if I promise to read the report, will you tell me here, what was it about these young men that gave them the courage to do it? And how did they, what behavior did they exhibit that helped them be successful?
2: Sure. You know, they talked about, many of them, how their moms and dads, you know, just said to them explicitly that, you know, these are some really problematic views that, uh, that people have about women and about minorities and you know so part of it was sort of early pre-college messaging from families but i would push back on them in in, in the interviews and say wait are you suggesting that your fraternity brothers your chapter brothers didn't come from yeah, that good they didn't families get the
1: same message and that
2: they didn't get the same messages and you know the guys would sort of suggest to me that I'm not sure that they got it, or at least that they heard it in the same way that I heard it and that I internalized it um, as a young person. So that was important for them. It was also important for them to be their full authentic selves. Like they, they understood that there was something quite fraudulent about co-signing on, you know, these statements and all these problematic behaviors. And these guys were like, look, I'm just, I'm going to be my authentic self. And, just say that this isn't right. This isn't who I am.
1: So the authentic self that I get the pleasure of talking with today is Dr. Sean Harper, who's the executive director and founder of the Center for the Study of Race and Equity in Education at Penn's Graduate School of Education. Um, and if you'd like to ask Sean questions or join in the conversation, you can reach us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's one 942 So coming back to the differences in these households, you know, fortunately, um, our kids are growing up in an era where there's different messaging than there was certainly when I was a child, even though as I talked with Josh Levs about last time he was on the show, we were the free to be you and me babies. But the degree to which that's been internalized and integrated into our sense of selves differs from person to person. Right. And so part of what made these young men um, able to find a different way is it had become part of their self identity. Yeah,
2: that's right. So I think that we need more identity affirming spaces for young men which is something that I advocate for in my in my work, uh, repeatedly. Um, you know, gender is often synonymous with women. So if there's any sort of gender-focused programming or any gendering of the curriculum in high school or in college that almost always means that we're going to focus on women's issues right and, which is so important i'm i'm, I'm definitely <laughs> definitely not arguing you know i teach in gender studies as well so no 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 i mean but I, but
1: I think it's true and isn't this something that we do when we're talking about sexuality or race that we Usually focus the conversation on the underrepresented group. Yeah, that's right. Where we need to close the gap without recognizing it as as having multiple dimensions. Yeah, that's
2: right. And without recognizing that men have gender, too, and that men (laughs) have been socialized to do their gender and perform their gender in ways that are oppressive to women, in ways that make them accidental or inadvertent or unconscious sexist and misogynist Uh, so I, I think that those things too are the byproduct of having so little in our culture and in our schools and universities that focus on men and their masculinities and their their identity development and so on.
1: Because our gender, we don't experience our gender realities in a vacuum. Right. It's in a society that has the other gender having different experiences. Absolutely.
2: Absolutely. And so that
1: as you're working with young men on these issues of masculinity, I want to come back to, um, because I think this is a marvelous um, arena to talk about are the young men who are in frats. Um, there's been a lot of news stories about bad behavior by young men in frats. Peggy Orenstein, who I think wrote a fabulous book, Girls and Sex, yes. explores what's going on there. Um, yet at the same time, you're showing us young men who are making better choices, who are standing up as role models to their peers. what's going on so we know that they have a different sense of themselves they internalize these messages in the interaction with their peers what are they doing that's different so that they're not ostracized or punished for being disruptors
2: yeah so one of the things that these men in this 20 university study did so beautifully is that they found other men in their chapters who also had those same values they had a way of uh, of recognizing that, wait, this guy is just like me. Um, he may be pretending to be like what he believes is the majority, but actually he's more like me. So they appealed to guys that they knew had certain values and had been uh, raised in particular ways and had certain gender commitments. And they started to build coalitions of of men within their fraternity houses Now, these were not huge coalitions. Sometimes it was just like two of them or three of them. But but at
1: least they weren't alone.
2: They were not alone, right? Um, I think we need more of that in workplace Mm -hmm. environments where, you know, men find other men who can help uh, to dismantle sexism um, and call out, you know, sexist things that, that, that other men say and do, right? It's... It's a lot easier to do when you know that you are not the only one.
1: Yes, when you have that support and you're not standing up there alone.
2: Right. I'll say just one more thing that I think has some workplace implications. So these guys in the fraternities, uh, when it was time to do a new pledge class, they were very much looking for newcomers to the fraternities who seemed to have some of those values. And they got to them very early and sort of pulled them into you know onto this side right i think the same thing needs to happen at work right when we're hiring uh people to work with us we need to hire more men who are not going to delight in paying women less and who are not going to you know go to happy hour with the other guys and you know rank order the women and say (laughs) all sorts of sexist (laughs) and ridiculous things about them
1: Um, we have a call coming in um ellen thanks so much for calling women at work what's on your mind today
0: um, I just wanted to say it's a fascinating conversation you were having. Our son went to an all-boys school that was really focused on building good men, and uh, he went to school in Canada. And when he went to college in the U.S., he was absolutely horrified by the frat uh, attitudes. And he did exactly what you were talking about. He went out and recruited uh, a wider basis of race and. Uh, attitude and, and you know he even went to a boys school that there was a transgender boy um, attending so it was a very uh, although traditional uh, uh, a welcoming environment towards these things and he really struggled through a number of years with people around these issues of what went on in in France frat's aren't popular in Canada and he really felt that that really that whole situation has to be re-examined. Because at the time, he's getting this amazing education, but then he is hearing these incredible uh, traditional views towards women that he didn't feel were acceptable, that were really part of the frat culture. So I I totally agree with what you're doing, and people really need to address this because for him, it was a shocking experience.
2: Thank you. I uh, am so grateful for yeah uh, you sharing and i'm so grateful for your son um and the uh the, the commitments that that he made when, when when he was in college um yeah we need more young men like your son and we need uh for universities to assume more educational responsibility for helping young men to um understand themselves as gender beings and to come to to recognize the ways in which they've been socialized and So on, you know, I have a book, College Men and Masculinities is the title of it. And I make an argument in the book that there are roughly a million college educated men that are um, that graduate each year. And I make the argument that to send nearly a million college educated men into the world without a proper course of study in gender and without sort of awakening their consciousness about their own gender. Views and behaviors makes colleges and universities complicit in the perpetuation of sexism and and, and gender inequities in our society, in our workplaces and and so on. So we, we have to do better as educators at universities of ensuring that young men don't graduate from Penn and elsewhere and go into the world and, you know, oppress women and other, you know, do other horrible things.
1: Absolutely, Ellen. So I congratulate you and thank you, thank your son for us. And thank you for calling women at work. We really appreciate it. So, Sean, one of the things you were talking about before was um, the importance of learning from other men and the role of role models. And I know that this is a big part of the work that you do. I think it's part of My Brother's Keeper. Could you talk about the importance of mentorship for men and the different places where young men can find role models?
2: Sure. I have actually a brilliant example um, from here at the University of Pennsylvania. This is my 10th year on the faculty here at Penn. Um, for the past decade, I've been the faculty advisor for Black Men United, which is an undergraduate student group here um that meets you know once every 3 weeks or so and when we meet is usually for 90 minutes over food and good conversation so each bmu meeting has a particular topic for for the night so sometimes it's about the experience of being underrepresented at penn other times it's about the uh senseless you know murders of unarmed black men um, in in our larger society. other times it's about sexual assault and misogyny and you know imagining what kind of man you want to be when you graduate from Penn and you go and work on Wall Street. So there are a range of topics, but usually just one topic per night, right? So you know, this is a space where depending on the topic, there's anywhere from 40 to a hundred black undergraduate men who are engaging in conversation, Um, And I can absolutely assure you that there is no locker room talk happening (laughs) there. Right. Uh, But I have
1: more important things to talk about. Much more important (laughs) things. But I
2: think that there is a certain version of role modeling that happens in that space. Right. It is a carefully and thoughtfully curated space where men can talk with other Mm men about things Pertinent to their manhood and their masculinity and their lives as black men without it being about breasts and
1: And vaginas and objectifying the other gender and without it also promoting violent behavior.
2: Correct. Yes,
1: because we know that women's circles have been incredibly important. In building community, in helping women evolve and progress politically and socially and economically. And the dialogue that happens there actually made a critically safe place for women to exchange information with one another about their own health and sexuality and well being that exactly. wasn't being shared elsewhere. That doesn't, and that makes it the best version of what happens when we can have our private circles. But it doesn't condone rape culture.
2: Right, exactly. What you just described is exactly how this space works. It is a circle for men to talk about these things, including their own health, their mental health and their physical health. You know, things that guys just don't often talk about when they're in the company of of other guys. I do want to make something, uh, you know, really clear. Um, And I I tried to do this in the Washington Post piece. I just think that it's worth, uh, you know, underscoring. Not all men and perhaps not even most men talk in the disgusting ways that we heard Trump and Billy Bush talk Mm -hmm. on on that bus. I think it's really important. The problem is too many men, though, engage in that kind of talk and the corresponding behaviors uh, that go along with it. Uh, I think that that's where my concern is, that there are too many men.
1: Yes, and which is why we even see in its dismissal as importance um, that when it carries social currency and it also talking about it can detract from social currency in other realms. We have just a few minutes left. So, one of the things I'm curious about is you know, it's amazing that our students get this time here with you while they're at Penn, but if there are um, moms of young boys out there, and they're looking to find male role models for their sons that may not be in their family structures. Or they're within schools and they're interested in serving as role models for others. What advice could you offer? I know I'm putting you on the spot. Are there, are, is there advice you can give to people when they're being asked to serve as role models?
2: Yes. I think that it is important to, for role models to not take for granted that young men um, recognize that it's really problematic to talk about girls and young women and older women um, in particular ways. I think that certain adults should sort of take for granted that, you know, there's no way. I can't tell you, Laura, how many times I've heard over the past uh, 10 days that my husband or my son would never talk this way I've, I've heard this from from women and you know my pushback has been yeah when you're around right like you just never you never know so i i think that we shouldn't take for granted that young men aren't talking in these ways because we've raised them with you know certain values right i think yes. that, that that we have to point to you know, other other men who don't behave and talk in these ways.
1: Exactly. So with that, I have to say, Sean, thank you. You serve as a remarkable role model for so many. Thank you for joining us on Women at Work.
2: My pleasure. Um,
1: I'd also like to thank Josh Leves, our producer, Patty Hall, our sound engineer, Dan Baker, and our production assistant, Allie Freed, who did an exceptionally good job with research this week. Our schedule of replays can be found on the SiriusXM website. Tune in next week when we talk with Wall Street Journal reporter, Joanne Lublin, on her new book, Earning It. Thanks so much for listening to Women at Work on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Laura Zarrow with Women at Work. Have a great week, everybody. We
0: try. Oh, yes, we can. and know we can, can. Yes, we can. Great Yes, we can.